Today's teaching text comes from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17. So I'm going to read it, and it's also going to be on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Siona's funny. She's the best. KFC, that's amazing. Well, welcome everyone. My name is Russell, and I am the pastor here. And uh, it's great to see new faces around our community over the last uh, few weeks. And um, to be honest, I'm just I'm loving what God is um, is doing, and the opportunity um, to sort of join together and to figure out what God is up to. It always feels like, rather than um, working towards these things, I always feel like we're catching up to where God is and what God is doing. And so I'm very excited about that. And so um, please say hi. Please introduce yourself. I know it can feel strange to like go into the QR code and scan the connection card and introduce yourself, but it is a way to be known. Uh, we won't spam you with a bunch of information. But um, it's, a, it's a way to be known, and it's also a way to, uh, to know more. And so we'll follow up with you, uh, grab a coffee with you. We'd love to abs- absolutely love to do that. And so um, if you're joining us today for the first time, we've been in a series um, called Return, and we're talking about different spiritual disciplines that actually um, posture us uh, towards Easter, this uh, return uh, to God as we celebrate the resurrection. And actually, we've been looking at different spiritual practices or different spiritual disciplines. And today, today is a little bit heavy, uh, as, you, as you may have noticed in the text. And so we're going to talk about um, the spiritual practices of self-examination and confession. So let's pray together as we begin. And so, Father, there's a thousand things that could distract us, but I pray right now that we would be centered here on this text. Um, and uh, like David um, prays in Psalm 139, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our thoughts. See if there's offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. This is my prayer. Um, Father, we don't want to hide. Uh, we want to be fully known and fully loved. And so I pray that as we come into this place that... Um, What we hear, may we hear it in love, and may we hear it in truth, and may we be our truest self. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
And so today's psalm uh, really serves as a model for confession. And what actually what David brings us is a, a deep self-awareness fused with theological declarations about who God is. So it's deep uh, self-awareness and big theological declarations about who God is. But to really understand this passage, what you actually have to do is understand a little bit of the, the backstory. And so if you, if you have your phone or if you by chance have a Bible, I'm going to be in two places today, Psalm 51. And then um, in the beginning here, I just want to examine um, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Because there's a story taking place that unfolds. Um, if you are looking on your Bible there, my, my Bible says um, in the heading, the editors have added a heading, and it says, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, his friend Nathan goes to him and confronts him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. So after he had this adulterous affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered to cover it up, right? It's like a prequel to Bridgerton. I don't know. I haven't watched that. But it's sort of seeming intense. Is that even close? No, okay, okay. Okay, so it's, it's not a prequel to Bridgerton. Okay, I tried, okay? So really, I'm going to give you kind of the abridged version because there, there are two long chapters and then we'll read part of it. But David is a, a king of Israel. He's a prosperous king. Um, he does right by God. The scriptures call him a man after God's own heart. But if you're going to read the Bible, you're going to read reality. Like I was even thinking this morning, I didn't even, um, we teach up here what we teach downstairs to the kids. And I was like, Yo, I'd hate to be them like today. Like, I don't know what they're going to even be talking about. Hopefully it's something different. My kids are down there. So, but when you read the scriptures, they deal with reality. And when you read the Bible from cover to cover, there's only one hero. Like we're prone to look at the characters in the Bible and say, look at how heroic they are. But that's not it. There's one hero in the Bible. His name is Jesus. The other characters are people like you and me who have this, um, who have a life where they live in tension between um, obedience and disobedience, success and failure, wins and losses. It's almost as if um, when I was reading it this week, I was thinking um, like as a parent, um, I've said this before, it's like do as, I didn't say it out loud, but I think it like do as I say, not as I do, right? And it's almost as if the biblical writers are saying that do as I say, not as I do, learn from my mistakes. And so David, largely a faithful king, but one day, one evening, he's out on the patio, he looks across and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. And it's like, why is she bathing on the roof? I don't actually know the answers to these questions. And a lot of you are like, I know the story, you don't have to go into the details, but just a high level overview, uh, overview he invites her over. I, I think it's a little bit more forceful than that as he's the king. They sleep together, she becomes pregnant while her husband's away. David seeks then to deceive her husband to sleep with her, bringing her home from battle. He won't do it because he's an honorable man. David then sends him to the front lines of the battle where, of course, Uriah dies, and it's just an absolutely mind-blowing story. And Psalm 51 is a response to his friend Nathan. Nathan comes to David and says this. It's a piercing parable found here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich, had, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. A piercing parable. And a lot of details in there that, that we're missing before and after. You can and go read it. The, the, the thing that I want to hone in on here today is that this encounter that David has with Nathan drives him to write Psalm 51, a psalm of confession. And I sort of uh, imagine David leaving here, grabbing pen and paper, going to his room, beginning to write Psalm 1, just weeping over this piece of paper, parchment, whatever it may be. But it's a deep self-awareness and an act of confession. It's a deep authenticity, a truthfulness about himself. And then you begin to see him take responsibility for his actions and his shortcomings and his brokenness. And so what we're going to talk about today in this idea of confession is that confession is sort of like a a congruence. It's a congruence of your actions and your speech. It's a congruence of these two things where actually as you practice this, you get a unity in your soul. One of the things we said um, coming into uh, this Lenten season was that leading up to Easter, what you actually do at Lent is you become deeply aware of the ways in which you fall short. And I hope that in a very personal way, you're able to do that today. As I'm talking, maybe you're wrestling in your head like the, about you know, things that you've done wrong or ways that people have wronged you. And actually what you're doing is you're getting a framework for why that happens as we, as we read this. But maybe what's most needed is just um, in honesty with ourselves today. If that, if that would be like a step for you today, I would feel like my goal was accomplished, which is like, how can you and I leave here a little bit more honest with ourselves about who we are? But that's actually not where David begins. And I love that, that I figured this out in this passage in our community group was really helpful. Order matters. Order matters. So this is where David starts in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so at first pass, I I was laughing a little bit. I was thinking to myself, it feels like David is kind of like, you know, like, according to your steadfast love, like, respond to everything I'm going to say. Listen to me. Hear my prayer. It's like he's kind of like, you know, cheesing up God so God will do what he says. But I do think that it would be a major mistake if we went straight to David's behavior. Right, if we went straight to the thing that David needed called out on, but rather what David does is he says, I know your nature and I know your character, God, and that's the thing that I'm going to lean into. And so, God, when you look at me, would you look at me according to your love? God, when you look at me, would you look at me according to your love? And some of us, like, I, I know we come to church and we, we like, we're, we're, our minds are churning on a million different things, but the reality is is God doesn't just like you, right? Like when you, when you read the scriptures, God is not just like tolerating you. God actually loves you with an overwhelming love because you're his child. God loves you with an overwhelming love because you're his child. And like, this is everything. This is the only thing. If you hear nothing else today, it's like, can you just sit in that and everything else will unfold? And because there's a temptation to hear about sin and confession and these things that we have to do without resting in the fact that God loves you with an overwhelming love because you're his child. And if you miss it today, you're going to listen to everything else I have to say and you're going to miss it. You're going to say, well, God is like, a, like an angry parent who just wants me to fall in line, to be compliant, right? No, that's, that's, not, that's not exactly it. 
Uh, I was thinking about this passage in 1 John chapter 4 uh, this week. It says, so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Like to you and I, when we think about love, it's like this high ideal. It's something we want in our life. It's, it's the way we want to engage with our friends. We want to say, like, I, wanna, I, want, I want to be loving. It's an idea. This passage says love is God's identity. Like to you and I, it's this high ideal. To God, it's, it's his very being. It's, it's what emanates from him. Uh, John three sixteen. we know this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I know we're early in here, but this is our God giving, sacrificing, loving and so if we skip to the, the uh, discipline of confession without understanding the deep love of God, we're just going to get something that's like psychologically therapeutic, maybe, you know, maybe like a good idea or like something that's like cathartic, but that's not exactly it. God loves us with an overwhelming love because we are his children. And so David rests in the truth, but he's not done. He says, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, he gets to the other truth. He begins to say, blot out my transgressions. David knows. He knows. He knows what he's done. He, he's, he's beginning to say it. And when we read in our community group this week, I was actually taken back by how much repetition I found in the passage. Um, verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Uh, verse 4, I've done what is evil in your sight. I've brought forth an iniquity. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. And it's like, dude, like you don't have to go that deep. Like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You know, you want to, if, so, if, if this was your friend, you would want to reassure him. You're like, it's okay. Ease up. Less verses, right? Maybe just like, maybe like eight. Eight is a better, you know, range there. And then I realized that what David is actually doing is he's using different Hebrew words. And so it took me forever to figure this out. But as I was going through and studying this, um, he uses basically every Hebrew word for sin, transgressions, wrongdoing, rebellion that he can think of. And so the primary word used in the Bible um, for sin, and I know that these, we'll kind of talk about today, the, the tension with this idea of sin, especially culturally. Like, don't, who, don't tell me what to do. You know, like, I don't, I don't know if I want to, that feels a little weird, right? But um, I, I want to challenge us today to think about why our world is the way that it is. Like, clearly, there's a, love, a level and a measure of brokenness in our world. And so if you're, like, struggling with the idea of sin or you're like, you know what, Russell? Like, I'm more of the framework of just, like, you do you. You do you. That's, that's fine, right? This sort of morally relativistic idea. I, I would just challenge you to lean in a little bit and to say, why, why is it that wars break out? Why is it that I can't get along with this group of people, my friends? Why is racism uh, a thing in our world? And what we actually begin to see, even through a passage like this, is that these are realities that are at work. And so the primary word used for sin in the Bible um, simply means to be off target, like an arrow wrongly um, directed. So instead of being aimed at God, we're aimed at a distorted image of the self. Um, there's another word here that, um, that David uses, um, it translated as, as tra transgressions. It actually means rebellion. It means I had my back towards God. Um, the other word that's used here is iniquity. And actually, he's, um, when he talks about iniquity, he's talking about the consequences of his behavior. He is actually talking about um, guilt or the punishment that he's actually feeling. 
And maybe you're even thinking, like, the language is just so archaic. Maybe we just need, like, a better word for this. But I think this word, and I'm going to use it pretty freely today, and I, I, I want to be careful with that, but I, this word sin is um, something we need a deeper understanding of. Not something we need to move on from. That, that might be the temptation, but actually something we need to understand in a deeper way. Um, Paul uses um, some intense language in uh, Romans. In Romans chapter 6, he says, for the wages of sin is death. And you're like, wow, this is a very encouraging sermon today. I know, I know. We're getting there, okay? This is why we need confession. We're getting there. This is why we need confession, because we actually need to understand what sin is and what sin does. And historically, when we think about sin, we think disappointing God or breaking God's law, but we actually need to take that, and that is partially true, but I think we need to take it deeper. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century, he defined sin as um, this Latin phrase, actually. It's incurvitus in se, and and what it is is it's a life turned inward on itself. And so here's what Martin Luther said about it. He says, our nature, by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself, that it not only bends the best gift of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these things, but it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeking all things, even God, for its own sake. And so what this means is that sin is a life turned inwardly on itself. It, it cannot see outside of the self. A, a, sin, a sin in this way is only consumed with the self. It cannot think about God, and it cannot think about other people. This is a perfect example. David is actually a perfect example of this. What he does is so utterly selfish, right? Going after the desires of his own flesh, his lustful flesh, saying, come to me, right? Um, Covering it up in sin. It's an inability to think outside of uh, the self. I was thinking this week um, about uh, the way that um, our architecture is designed, and actually um, was reading that the average American family is actually shrinking, Um, But the average new American house has grown from an average of 1,400 square feet to an average of 2,400 square feet in the last 30 years. And so our architecture is screaming, hide in me, right? Go into a closet in your third basement, like whatever, and like hide. And I know I was reading this and I was like, this just doesn't work actually because like I would dream of having 800 square feet, you know? But I think when we we look at it this way, the sort of... um, the inability to see outside of ourselves, the hyper-individualism of our age, like these things are not new, but we're actually beginning to see the cracks in our progressive age, right? The, the isolation, the depression, the anxiety, the narcissism, the uh, addiction. And I want to be gentle here, but a lot of times what this is is a life turned inwardly on itself. Here's a picture from the New Yorker from um, 2015. And this is like perfectly, like I couldn't have thought of it any better. Um, it's like Texnec. You guys know, is this, is this a medical diagnosis? Texnec? Um, our friends that are doctors over here. So what is this man unable to do? Like, he can't see outside of himself. Fully consumed, right? Life through a three-by-five screen, missing the world. Like, the butterflies above him, the beauty of the world is around, and he just can't even, can't even acknowledge it, right? Can't even see it. And I think that it's easy to... Um, it's easy to point the finger, but it's harder to see in ourselves. It's so much harder to see in ourselves the way that we've isolated ourselves. 
But maybe, maybe to flip it around, like imagine this idea, a sin as a life turned inwardly on itself. What happens when 8.8 million people in a city turn inwardly on themselves and never think or care about other people, right? That's sin, right? That, 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 and what happens, it just begins to unfold. Like sometimes I think about that, like what did you think was going to happen when you put that many people on an island, right? New York, Manhattan is like this ex- big experiment. What would happen Life turned inwardly on itself. And, but that's not the only way to think about sin. I want us to think about sin in another way, too. Um, so sin is not only, only thinking about ourselves, but it's also seeking an identity apart from God. Uh, this is what Soren Kierkegaard said. He said, sin is building your identity on anything but God. And so you're looking at different things in your life. And you and I, we don't, we're never going to say this consciously but we're cobbling together an identity apart from him. Here's another magazine cover from The New Yorker. Uh, This is 2014. And uh, this picture is really fascinating to me is um, the artist was trying to depict um, different eras and the, that, that city block and what that city block might look like. And so like 1965, you get cool pants, 1620, not so cool pants. But one of the things that I found really fascinating was as the future begins to unfold, it's not completely true, but as the future begins to unfold, um, the picture is getting smaller. It's more compartmentalized, right? It's, it's, it's taking up um, more division and more space. And the truth is, is for a lot of us, when we think about our identity, who we are, if we're honest, we're just making it up. And we're just like piecing it together and we're just trying to say like, I got this role and I got this job and that's like a part of who I am and like I'm in this relationship and that's a part of who I am and I'm in this relationship and that's a part of who I am. And all of a sudden we're like, okay, I think as a holistic picture, this is who I am, this big mosaic. And the truth is, is we're just trying to figure it out, right? And so this, maybe this is the goal today is just even to have a picture like this, this big mosaic of who we are and to say, I long to be one unified picture, but the truth is, is I'm just piecing it all together, right? So if you take this, if, you, if we were to kind of parse this out, you think about like the sin of greed. Why are we greedy? Generally, we're greedy because we're seeking status or security, right? Status, what can money buy me so I look good, right, in front of other people, or we're seeking security. How can I exchange money for comfort and safety? Right? So that would just be an outplaying of greed. The sin of greed dug down a little deeper. All of a sudden, we're like, okay, I'm actually just seeking status or security. What about lying? Why do we lie? Why do we deceive other people by telling lies? Actually, what we're attempting to do is we're attempting to portray ourselves as a whole person when, in fact, we're not. We're in pieces. Uh, what about lust or gluttony? Like what, what we're doing is we're actually exploring what to do with our desires. We don't exactly know what to do with our desires. Oftentimes we're comfort creatures seeking release, but we dig deeper, right? It's never just the, the sin on the surface, but it's actually something deeper where we're trying to find an identity outside of and apart from God. And so as I'm saying this, um, I, don't want, I don't want you to uh, mistake judgment for conviction, and so I think sometimes we feel a level of conviction and we say, wow, that guy's just judgmental, right? Like he just, he's just judging me with what he's saying. Like there is no right, wrong. Like don't mistake judgment for conviction. If you feel that level of um, conviction, maybe there's a reason for that. And maybe you're like, Man, I should have came next Sunday, right? Like what's the discipline for next Sunday? So here's the good news. God loves you with an overwhelming love because you're his child. And 
here's my claim. I want to say this truthfully, honestly, and gently, but here's the bad news. You're a sinner, okay? Like that, that's, this is what I'm trying to get at today. I'm not trying to be fancy. God loves you with an overwhelming love because you're his child and you're a sinner. And we live with these, true, uh, these two truths simultaneously. And so what do we do, right? Like sometimes I'm like, I go to church and I'm like, I know just rest in the gospel, like what Jesus did for me on the cross, but like give me some action. And what I found is that this is profoundly tangible. This is what James says in James 5. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another. And by the way, pray for one another. After, after service, Christine is going to be over here. would love to pray with you for whatever you're going through in a non-judgmental way. And so what about these two disciplines? I want to break these down because I want to be clear about what they are, and I want to kind of drive us to um, give you a tool to walk out of here to say, how can I like, actually do this in a tangible way? And so um, the, the tool is not just confession, but the, the discipline is actually also self-examination. It's a process where the Holy Spirit opens my heart to what is true about me. And for some of us, we actually just need to create space to reflect on these things. We need to like get some time in, uh, in a journal where we're just writing down and reflecting. And I'll give you a tool today to do that. And then confession, admitting to God, myself, and others my sin, and embracing Christ's gift of forgiveness, right? It's, it's the opposite of the, the New Yorker photo. It's not fragmented. It's this whole picture that's coming together. And I want to be, be specific here too. When I think about, when we think about confession, I'm talking about confessing your sins literally to a friend, to a person, to a mentor, whatever that may be, but also communally. And we'll, we'll practice that together at the end here today too. But before we think about that, I just want to acknowledge before that this is, you know, um, profoundly practical, it's profoundly unnatural, and this is not something that comes naturally to uh, who we are. In fact, I would say confession to me seems rare and rarer as our culture is less forgiving, right? As forgiveness is, is rare, so is confession, right? We live in the cancel culture. And, um, and, and hear me well, I think people should definitely face the consequences of their behavior. And I think people are given over to that. Um, we shouldn't say everything we think and we shouldn't do everything we feel, but the point is, is that what David is doing in the psalm is, is completely unnatural to us. Like to, you read a few of these verses, you're like, I don't, one, I don't speak like that. But maybe that's the point is like, maybe we should speak like this, right? That we would become deeply aware of what we've done. I've been brought forth in iniquity. I've, I need cleansing from my sin. And the reason it's so unnatural is because we're actually really invested in looking like good moral people right? To, to, to present something that looks good. In fact, I read the passage this week and I thought, well, you know what? At least I didn't have an affair and murder somebody. Like, that's how I looked at the passage. Like, mine, we start like grading it, right? And so it's so unnatural because we're prone to hiding, right? We don't talk about these things because that, that would be embarrassing. That would be weird. That would be awkward. And yet, it's why we're not known. It's, not, it's why we're not cared for in the midst of it. And so, two things I want to say here. Confession is an invitation to reality. Confession is an invitation to reality. When, when we tell other people the truth, we're actually practicing the truth about who we are, right? And so, we actually need to um, rehearse these things. We need to practice admitting the truth to ourselves. 
So um, I don't always love like personality tests or like these typing systems. I, I think that by and large, they make us pretty judgmental people um, and like put people in boxes. But I remember 2016, the Enneagram is like going around and like this cool fad thing. And I was like, I'm definitely not doing that because it's so popular. Like I'm too cool for that. And then one night um, I came home, my like wife had like bought the, this book and was like, let's do this like personality test. And I was like, fine. And um, so I like get out my phone or whatever, and I take the test. And um, I remember, like, it was it was such a physical feeling saying this truth about myself. And so I, it pulls up, and it says, "You are an achiever or performer. Your success. This is like confession time for me here." You're success-oriented, image-conscious, wired for productivity. You're motivated by a need or, uh, um, uh, or appear to be successful, um, and you avoid failure. You're a feeler, though you have a hard time accessing your feelings. You have trouble believing that you can be loved just for who you are and not your achievements. You're optimistic and resilient, and you have a fear of failure. And I looked at my wife, and she said, oh, my gosh, that's exactly you. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I felt, I felt so ashamed. I felt naked. I felt like somebody knew me before I knew me. And not, not even joking, I, it was within a month that we were in counseling because I was having all of these revelations about who I was for the first time. I was learning painful things about myself. And actually, that, um, that actually unlocked a sort of journey for me where um, I appreciated that this particular personality typing system didn't actually begin with my strengths but it actually began with my weaknesses. It tore me down so that I could be built back up. I was given ways of understanding my self-awareness, um, challenged to go back into my family of origin, challenged to go back and talk to my family about these things. And it was hard work. And so this idea of self-examination, like I'm, I'm not claiming that these two things are easy today, but I am saying there's something that we're called to and that will bring us a truth to our lives. Actually, this past week, um, a dear friend of mine, um, he told me the truth about me. Um, I, I, I didn't actually hurt him, but he had noticed uh, a pattern and a behavior in me, and he came to me, and we sat down, and we were, we were just hanging out and talking, and then at the end, he was like, can I, can I say something to you? Can I point something out that I've noticed? And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. And he was so gracious so direct and clear about what I had done, it gave me clear examples. He didn't talk to other people about it, but rather he came to me in private and pointed out my mistake. And he brought me to a reality. He brought me to a truth. And I'm going to be honest, it hurt. And my, in, my, internally, my walls of defense came up. I was like, I want this conversation to be over. This is uncomfortable, right? Or begin to rationalize in my mind. Like, this example he gave was perfect and spot on, and that's true. This one, uh, it's like a little messed up. But no, he was right. And I learned the truth about myself as he spoke the truth in love to me. And I think for, for us as people, life has a way of saying hide. Life has a way of saying hide your true self right? Your true self is not welcome or safe or wanted. And so what, what do most of us do? We actually just construct a sort of false self. We say, this, this is who I am. And what we're doing is we're cobbling together an identity from other things, reputation, success, status, family, jobs. But an identity based on these things is always one that's done in hiding. And so for me in the journey, I sort of began to wonder, what if I actually just dropped a lot of those? And still wrestle and struggle with that, of course, but what if I dropped the act and began to believe that I can be loved just for who I am. And actually, in verse 6 of this psalm, in Psalm 51, verse 6, it says, Behold, 
you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I read that verse like 10 times in a row and I was like, what does it mean? You delight in truth in the inward being and I finally realized, I think what David is saying here is he delights in truth when we're true to ourself, right? When we can confess to ourselves the truth and I think that's a massive part of this journey of confession is are you even being honest with yourself about your shortcomings, about who you are as a person? Uh, culturally, one of the um, best environments for this to happen is uh, through Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I won't read all their 12 steps, but here are their first four. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And then we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I've been a part of somebody's um, AA journey, and I've sat with someone as they've walked through step four and chart out their life and the ways they've seen alcohol wreck their life. And I think one of the challenges here is that we actually need to create the space to um, be able to reflect deeply. And so I just want to give you this tool. If you want like a one-pager on this, it's almost done. I, I was going to include it today. Um, but if you want that, you can email me, and I'll send it to you. Um, the next slide here, Elizabeth, there you go. Um, here's just a tool of self-examination. Um, these are two different pa pathways to do it. I just wanted to keep it on one slide. Um, but if you're hurt, um, if you have a relational issue, this is like a way of therapy with yourself, um, but understanding the truth about who you are. You can walk through it on uh, the left side. You're getting at a behavior, an attitude, the cause and the effect, and then your contribution. You want to stick in the I language um, to avoid uh, blame on other people. Um, but I think of it this way, like um, behavior or attitude. I'm resentful of my siblings. What is the cause? I didn't feel accepted socially by them during my teen years. I often felt excluded. This isn't me, actually. Um, I just use this as an example. I love my siblings, um, and maybe they resent me. I don't know. Um, I often felt excluded from conversation and activities because I was different. The effect would be hurt or withdrawal, defensiveness, patterns of hiding my real feelings, um, self-pity. And then my contribution is, is I haven't made it in enough initiative to tell them, to tell them the truth or I react in anger. So those four can actually be a pattern or a way to reflect deeply on something going on in your life. The other way to do it would be a person. So you'd think like um, maybe like my spouse. Um, what is the feeling that I'm experiencing? Shame, anger, confusion. What is the cause? Um, I have a loss of self-respect. I'm not feeling accepted, whatever that may be. Um, the effect would be that we tend to accept as true what other people say about me. So you're internalizing everything somebody else say, says. Um, you feel helpless even when you know that you could do something. And so this is a very, very simple tool. We have a one-pager on this. The other, the other part of it that I really appreciate is a... Um, a feelings wheel, we use this a lot in some of our emotionally healthy classes. I am one that has a hard time like getting at what I'm feeling. And so we actually have a wheel that gets at our feelings. Actually, Katie introduced me to it. And it was just, just an amazing tool to be like, okay, I'm tracking down, I'm feeling sad. And then it takes the, um, the emotion deeper so you can really get at what is um, experienced. And so I think some of you are thinking to yourself, like, Russell, nobody has time to sit and reflect that deeply on the experiences of their childhood or whatever it may be. And so here's the simplest way to do it. It's very, very painful, and you need to be in a good place emotionally to do it, and you need to find a trusted friend. But here's what you could ask. 
you could ask a friend, what is it like to be on the other side of me? What is it like to be on the other side of me? Um, I've done this before. It's not fun. I'm being very serious. If you're, um, you're sitting next to a friend right now and you're like, I'm going to ask you that later, I would, I would caution you, okay? Um, this should not lead us to self-hatred or self-condemnation, but what, what it does is actually opens our, ourselves up to um, renewal and peace in our life, and um, it's what's so desperately needed. So let me keep going here. I want to I kind of um, get, get to the end here. Confession is an invitation to reality, but it's also an invitation into community. And so David actually needs Nathan to get to this point, right? David's been hiding this whole time until Nathan approaches him. That's when the text says that he wrote Psalm 51. Um, I read on a blog this week that confession is good for the soul but bad for the reputation, right? This is only true, though, when you're in a community that's devoid of forgiveness, and so this is, what the, this is the beauty of the church as a Christian community, right? You, you're drawn in in a confession, and hopefully what the person on the other side of you is doing is like this, right? I'm, I'm taking in what you're saying, but I'm pointing to Jesus, right? Like I'm taking in what you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you, and I'm just like, you are so messed up, and it's so crazy, me too, right? But you're so loved simultaneously, look at Jesus, like that, that's, that's the pathway for this whole thing, and this is where Christianity um, makes such a difference. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, in confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It wants to isolate, right? It takes them away from community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of what is left unsaid, sin poisons the whole being of a person. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and closed isolation of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. What is unspoken is said openly and confessed. All that is secret and hidden comes to light. And I sit in a room like this, and I actually just look around, and I know the power of confession in this room where you have believed and believed again that you are actually safe to be your truest self because you've said the deepest and darkest truths of yourself and someone sitting next to you said, I love you. And this is like the whole thing just comes down. You're like, I get it. Like the, the walls come down. And you're like, this is just who I am. And I, I think, you know, I, maybe even as, um, as we reflect on starting like a new church community, like I, I, maybe it's important for me to say like, I'm not, I'm not a pastor because I have all of this figured out, Right? Like, I, I want to go first in realizing I'm profoundly broken and in need of Jesus. And reunion is not a, a country club for moral people. Like, that's not what I hope that this church is. But rather, we're broken people that are repenting, who in humility are able to say, I am what I am. I know the truth of that. But I'm deeply loved by Jesus. And that's where this confession actually becomes this sort of... Uh, rebellion in an age of individualism. You're fighting against that individualism. And so historically, the church has practiced this together. I think this is a worthy addition to our um, structure as a church, um, a confession and assurance of pardon. I don't know if you've grew up in a church that um, said these things, but I think periodically we should say these things together um, as a corporate way of confession. And so it's going to come up on the screen. And I actually want to give you a second to read this. I don't want you to read it, you know, blindly. And so go ahead and read this. And then if you, um, if you agree with what it says, let's say it together um, as we wrap up.
And so if you agree, uh, let's say it together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. And you don't need to say this part, but um, the prayer of confession is usually followed by an assurance of pardon. Hear the good news. Christ died and rose again for us. He reigns in power and prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone and new life has begun. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And I hope what this does is it just draws us into a profound humility. And so if you're comfortable with it, um, close your eyes. And I want to read, I want to read Psalm 51 um, before we take communion here. And I just want to remind you of the work and the person of Jesus as, as uh, I read this. And so Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And I would say he has in his son Jesus. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And I would say he has through the life and blood of his son, Jesus. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your word and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He has in his son, Jesus. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He has in his son, Jesus. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. He has in his son, Jesus. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He has in his son, Jesus. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud in your righteousness. He has in his son, Jesus. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or you will give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. He has and his son, Jesus. Let's pray. And so, Father, um, we come full circle to this idea that uh, we are so deeply loved. We are loved with an overwhelming love because we are your children. And I pray that that would be the thing that we'd wrestle with, that that would actually be the thing that roots us and then um, helps us understand our shortcomings and our wrongdoing, not as a, a sort of shame-inducing um, inventory but a way of understanding our belovedness in your son, Jesus. We look at this passage and we are able to see um, the great sacrifice and blood of your son as such a gift to uh, who we are. And um, it just reroots our identity in you. And so I thank you. I, I pray that as we come to the uh, table this morning that we would be reminded um, of what you've done and um, how kind you are to us, even when we don't deserve it. And so be with us as we take these elements. It's in your name we pray. Amen.